And uh, we have the opportunity to open up uh, the words of this prayer here this morning and reflect on Jesus' prayer for us. And, and we're going to look at, there's probably a lot, of, there's a, there are a lot of different ways you can look at this prayer, but we're, we're going to look at just four of his petitions here before the Father in John 17. And uh, I trust that God will encourage your heart today as so as you find your place there, I just want to make mention that we um, remind you that we, have, we don't have any evening activities tonight at the church, especially if you have kids or uh, um, youth. Just, just wanted to make sure that you were mindful of that, that we're not going to have any uh, evening activities that we normally have uh, going on. And then um, I just also want to give a big thank you for those of you who stayed after last Sunday to help um, get the stage all torn, torn apart. And we're just so thankful for those who are helping this week make this happen. Uh, the crew came in, and, and really our, our biggest um, win for this was to be able to get all on one level. So for our for dramas, for uh, VBS, and and just even for our worship team, being able to have the the stage all at one level has been a has been a huge blessing already. So it'll continue to shape take shape in the next couple of weeks, and uh, you'll see it continue to transform here. As we look at this, as we look at this prayer of Jesus, I, I just I'm still floored. We said it last week. I'm still astounded. The night before Jesus was going to the cross, he was praying for us. Like, like you know how it is to be distracted or to have something on your mind, especially if it's, if it's something big, a, a big doctor's appointment or a medical exam or maybe a, a test if you're a student. You know, the, the night before, it's easy to be distracted and have your mind elsewhere. Well, Jesus was about ready to go to the cross and bear the sins of the world on his shoulders. I mean, talk about being distracted. Talk about having an excuse to have your mind elsewhere. And yet, he was praying for us. What a beautiful thing. I don't know about you, but I love, I mean, it's so encouraging when I get a text. And many of you have done this. You text me during the week and say, Pastor, I want you to know I'm praying for you today. Or if someone comes up to you and says, how can I, how can I be praying for you? And, and right on the spot, they, they pray over you. It's such an encouraging thing. Well, here, Jesus Christ, God himself, is saying, I'm praying for you. Jesus brings you and I before the Father. And here's what, he, here's what he prays for. The first one is that Jesus prays that we would be kept. I love this. In verses 11 and 12, we see, uh, we hear him say in the middle of the, uh, verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by your name. Protect them by your name that you've given to me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Jesus was saying while he was here on earth, he was, he was guarding, he was protecting his disciples, his people, and the only one that was lost was the one that was prophesied to be lost, Judas, that, that he would betray um, the son of man, and that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus was able to guard, to protect his disciples. Your translations may sort of render this word a little bit differently, uh, but, but some of them will, 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 uh, will say keep or kept. Holy Father, keep them by your name. This word is used frequently by John, but it's often used, it's, it's most frequently used to talk about when Jesus would say, uh, tell us to keep his commandments. 
to obey him. But here he's using it in a different sense. He's talking about keeping us, guarding us, holding on to us. The, the word gives the idea of to, to cause someone to be able to continue on, to retain something or someone unharmed and undisturbed. Jesus said that he guarded them, and then now he's praying to the Father that the Father would protect and guard and keep them by his name. It reminds us of 1 Peter 1.5 that we studied not all that long ago, where believers are described as those who are, by God, who are kept by God's power, by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to reveal in the last time. Jesus here in this prayer says, God, keep them by your name. Peter says, keep them by your power. The, the, the idea is put the full force of your divinity behind the protecting of your children. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer. To know that Jesus is asking that the Father would keep us safe, that he would hold on to us. Do you know this morning that it's not you that's holding on to God, but it's God that's holding on to you. I remember when, when and I've used this illustration before, but I remember when we were, uh, my wife and I lived in China, and we just had our two oldest boys at the time, and they were real little. And, we, you know, it was, a, it was a big city. It was the first time I'd ever lived in a city like that. There was just people everywhere, and traffic, and and. and bikes and uh, electric bikes just when you would be out on the on the streets like there was no place safe you could be on the sidewalk and a motorcycle would zoom past you like it just felt like it was it was chaos there was traffic lights but people really didn't pay much attention i discovered that pedestrians do not have the right of way there it's sort of like whoever goes whoever's the most courageous goes first or whoever has the the car with the most metal or something like that. And so when we would cross the streets, my kids were like at the time uh, five and three. And, and I would hold on to their hands for dear life because I, I didn't know where a vehicle or a bicycle or a motorcycle was going to come from. It was just everywhere. And, and those boys, they were not safe because of the strength of their grip. As powerful as their little hands might have been. They were safe because their father was holding on to them with the strength of his grip. And I was determined not to let them go. The same is true, but much more abundantly so, that we have a father who's holding on to us. If, if you read John 10, you, 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 Jesus repeats the image when he talks about, I'm, I'm giving you to the father and, and nobody can pluck them out of the father's hands. My brothers and sisters this morning, know that you are being held by the power of God. Jesus prayed that the name of God, that, that, that through the name of God, the Father would keep you safe. It reminds me of this beautiful Psalm 121. I will lift my eyes towards the mountains where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. 
The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. Now, that psalm doesn't tell us that nothing bad's ever going to happen in our lives. That's not what he's saying. We know that by experience that's, that's just simply not true, and we see in God's Word that that's not the case either. God, God the Father let His Son be put to death, for goodness sakes. But what he's saying is that when, when God has you, when God is holding you, when God is protecting you, when God is keeping you, there's nothing that can ultimately do you any real harm. Even, even, if, even if your enemies were to kill you, even if you were, were, were to get sick or you were to lose everything, there is nothing that can ultimately dislodge you from the hand of God. We are kept by God. We are kept for God. But we are also kept, according to this text, from the evil one. Verse 15 repeats the same language and he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He's saying, listen, they're, they're in this world. We're going to see later on that we're not, we're not of the world or we don't belong to the world, but we're, we live here. We, all, we, don't, we don't live anywhere else until Elon Musk sends us to Mars. We're, we're here in this world. And, and he says, listen, I'm not asking that you take them out of it, but as they're in it, protect them from the evil one. Jesus himself prays that we would be protected from the enemy. My brothers and sisters, I want to just remind you this morning that, that our enemy is not greater than our Father. I want to remind you that, that Jesus has, has prayed for us to be kept safe from our enemy. Sure, he is going to tempt. Sure, he is going to discourage. And he, he will attack. We read that or we studied that in the last uh, verses of 1 Peter. But at the end of the day, he cannot take us away from the Father. Jesus is praying that we would be protected from the evil one. This is reiterated in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. Our enemy has far less power in our lives than God. And there is nothing he can do to separate us from God's love for us. My brothers and sisters, this morning, if you remember nothing else, remember this petition from our Lord and Savior. He has prayed that the Father would keep us, and the Father will answer that. He will hold on to us. He cannot lose us, and we desperately need God to keep us moment by moment. I love how Charles Spurgeon preached this when he said, greatly do we need keeping. You have been redeemed, but you must still be kept. You've been regenerated, but you must be kept. You are pure in heart and hands, but you must be kept. You are quickened with divine life. You have aspirations after the holiest things. Your love of Christ is intense, but you must be kept. You have had a deep experience, and you know the temptations of the enemy, but still, you must be kept. The sunlight of heaven rests upon your honored brow. You are near to the gates of glory, you must be kept. The same hand that, brought, that bought you must keep you. And the same Father who has begotten you again unto a living hope must keep you into his eternal kingdom and glory. All glory be unto him who is able to keep us from falling. 
Let all those unite in the song who are kept by the power of God. My brothers and sisters, whatever assails you this week, whatever burdens you, whatever tempts you, know that you have a Father who is holding on to you. Secondly, Jesus prayed for our joy. Jesus prayed for our joy. No matter how many times I read something like this in the Scripture, and it it pops up far more than you imagine, I'm astounded that God is concerned with our joy. You know, like, sometimes it feels like the Christian life, we, we can get into this rut where we think it's like drudgery or just like we're just going through the motions. I'm just, I'm just obeying because that's what I'm supposed to do. Sort of like that cartoon character when the parent said, you'll eat your porridge and like it. And we say, I'll eat it, but I won't like it. Sort of like God's like, you need to obey me. You need to follow me. All right, I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it very much. Like, that's not the... That, that's not the picture that the scriptures give us about walking with God. The the, the fact is, over and over again, we see in scripture that God's concerned about our joy. He knows that, that truly worshiping Him and walking with Him should bring an abundance of joy. Now, it doesn't, we don't always live that way, but when we're, when we're in His presence, And we're experiencing what it means to fellowship with God. We talked a little bit about that last week. Joy is an overflow. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So in this prayer in verse 13, Jesus prays and he says, Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Jesus is interested in in having the divine joy. Jesus joy completed in you and me. So this isn't like a second-rate, two-bit joy. This is joy that overflows from the triune God into our lives. That's why, again, Galatians 5 says love is, love, or, that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. You and I, we don't have this. I, I, can, be, I can be momentarily elated through various circumstances, but deep-seated joy... It comes from God within us. We see in places like Psalm 1611, where the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. What a beautiful psalm. Just sit with that for a while, that that. In God's presence, there is the greatest fruition and expression of joy that we could ever imagine. Think about all the things that have brought you good, happy feelings in your lifetime. Some of them you can count on. Some of them you know that if I go back to this place or if I go through this experience, I know that there's going to be some elation, some some happiness. But ultimately, what he's saying is, is that that if, if we want to experience the full expression of those emotions, it comes from being in the presence of God. That's why Peter could speak of a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. It's not something that you can even put into words, Peter says. Jesus told us in John 15, he said, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. 
This morning, are you looking for happiness? Are you looking for that satisfaction, that contentment, whatever synonyms we want to use there? Well, Jesus, through his prayer, reminds us that it's found in the presence of God. It's found from walking with God, from, from fellowshipping with God. When Jesus told us in John 15 to abide in his love, as we rest there in his arms, he fills us with this joy. This kind of joy was evident in the life of the hymn writer Fanny Crosby. Some of you know Fanny Crosby's story that at five years old, she, from a childhood illness, she went blind. And so for the next 90 years till the day of her death, she was completely and totally blind. And yet, she was a woman of deep-seated joy, a disability like that, and yet found great contentment and rest in God. When she was eight years old, she wrote this. Let me repeat that. What I'm about to read, this girl wrote when she was eight years old. She wrote this, Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. (laughs) Wow. Even as an eight-year-old, she got it. She understood that her joy didn't come because of her health, because of her wealth, because of her position in society. Her joy was rooted in Jesus Christ. She would go on, because she couldn't couldn't read, her grandmother taught her to memorize Scripture. So she would listen to Scripture and would memorize it. She memorized much of the Word. And, And Through her, God allowed her to write over 6,000 hymns for the church, songs such as Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross, Blessed Assurance, and so many others. She was determined, though, to never let blindness hinder her joy. I wonder what, what kinds of things we allow to steal our joy. I know that just some of the, the simplest irritations, the simplest things of when things don't go my way, all of a sudden the joy is sucked out of my, my heart and it's replaced by irritation and anger and frustration and disappointment and self-pity. Later on in life, Fanny Crosby would write, blindness cannot keep the sunlight of hope from the trusting soul. One of the easiest resolves that I formed in my young and joyous heart was to Leave all care to yesterday and to believe that the morning would bring forth its own peculiar joy. What a deep-seated trust in God. A pastor one time meant well, but he remarked to her, he said, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts. Fanny Crosby responded at once, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. She would go on to say that she was sort of glad that she wasn't distracted by so many things that eyesight would 
would allow her to see and take in. She could single-mindedly reflect on God as she wrote hymns for the church. Joy doesn't come from just grim determination. Joy doesn't come from you and I waking up tomorrow morning and say, doggone it, no matter what, I resolve. I'm going to be, I'm going to have a, a great attitude. Like, <laughs> it, it comes from, it comes from the Spirit of God within us. Thirdly, Jesus prays that we would be sanctified. In verses 16 through 19, he says, speaking of the disciples, they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, so also I've sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Jesus prays that we would be set apart. Scripture teaches us that this word of this word sanctification, it kind of it unfolds in three different tenses in our lives. Some of you know this, that the, the, the past tense for the Christian is when we came to know Christ as our Savior, we were set apart. That's what Jesus is praying about here. God, would, would you reserve them for yourself? Make them unique. Make them holy. Sanctify is, is tied to holy. God, I, I want you to set them apart. But then also Scripture talks about this present sanctification, like there's an ongoing ongoing set-apartedness that we're experiencing. As you and I go closer to Jesus, we're being more and more set apart for Him. As our life, as we grow in holiness, as we grow in our passion for Him, as we grow in our love for Him, the Bible tells us that we are being sanctified, present tense, set apart. But then there's also a sanctification that's still future, when we will be fully and completely and wholly set apart for God. If you're a Christian, you look forward to that day when you will no longer have any distractions that keep you from loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we see our Savior face to face, we will be changed, Scripture says, and we will no longer battle with sin. There will be no more death. There's nothing that hinders us from a full 24-7, even though there won't be time anymore, I don't think, a full day in, day out, gazing upon God and the glory of Christ. And, and the purpose of this setting apart is in verse 18. He, he, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into this world, I've also sent them. Notice that he's sanctifying us, he's setting us apart so that we'll go on mission. So often Christians can say, well, I want to be separate from the world just for the sake of being separate. That's not what he's talking about here. He says, listen, I want, I'm, I'm setting you aside not to get away from the world, but actually so that you'll go out with the gospel. I sanctify them so that they can be sent into the world. There's a lot more that we could say there. Before we move on, I just want to also mention that the sanctification, verse 17 and verse 19, tell us it's by the truth. My brothers and sisters, we need the Word of God if we're going to be more and more set apart unto Christ. If we're going to be more like Jesus and more reserved for His calling in our life, we need the Word of God. Our minds need to be shaped by the Scriptures. In practical terms, one writer says, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him. 
That's why we seek to know Him through His Word. And then finally, the, the, the fourth thing that Jesus prays for is that we would be united, that we would be united. As you heard Ben read these verses, we see it again in several times. He's already mentioned it in verse 11, so that they may be one as we are one. But now he says it in verse 21, may they be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Verse 22, so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be, be, may be made completely one so that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Seems like this being one is kind of a big deal to Jesus. He's mentioned it uh, at least four times, that they may be one. Jesus is praying that we would be united. First of all, in this unity that he speaks of with, with, the, with the Father and the Son, we talked about this a little bit last week, this idea of union with Christ, this mysterious truth that the New Testament tells us about how we as Christians, as we get saved, we're like brought into the divine life somehow. It doesn't mean that we're little gods, but somehow that we are united with Jesus in a way that, that brings this, this powerful, radical unity between us and the Father that was shared by the triune God since before the foundation of the world. It's a mind-boggling uh, blessing and, and confounding truth that we are brought into the, 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 the love of the three-in-one in this way. But more than that, though, I think he's also praying for the oneness of you and I. That, that First and foremost, it would be rooted in who God is, revealed in Christ and brought about by the work of Jesus Christ. But this, this oneness that is settled in heaven is supposed to work its way out here among God's people on earth. So in God's mind and in the economy of God, we are one. We are united. But then he calls us to live in a way that reflects the unity that is true of us. You know, some of us don't, don't always act. You know, maybe, maybe kids, have you ever had your parents say, why don't you act your age? Like, why don't, you, why don't you be what I know you can be? Why don't you be mature? Why don't you grow up? <laughs> and, and, and God here is now saying, I want you to act in a way that I'm, I know is already true of you. You're united. So live in a united way. Live in one another without divisions. And notice the purpose behind that. He says it twice, but in verse 23, so that the world may know you have sent me. Verse 21 is the same. So that the world may know. My brothers and sisters, it's easy to get caught up in what we have going on in our lives. I mean, just walking with Jesus sometimes and battling our own stuff can be all-consuming, that if we're not careful, we forget that we have been saved with a purpose. We've been saved for a mission. Just like he said with the sanctification, the same is true about this prayer for unity. He says, I want you to get along with one another, love one another, so that the world might know that the Son was sent by the Father. Our unity becomes then a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
As we close, I just want to point out two things. There's a phrase in verse 19 that is, is interesting. Jesus says, I sanctify myself for them so that they may be sanctified by truth. Jesus said, I'm setting myself apart so that you and I might be set apart. You see, this entire prayer is based on the fact that Jesus willingly set himself aside. Philippians 2 talks about this, that, that he shed his own divine prerogatives and made himself nothing and submitted to the death upon a cross so that you and I could be brought near to God. Jesus set himself apart so that you and I could be set apart. Jesus was willing to be separated from God so you and I could be brought near to God. You see all the movement that's happening here? Jesus stepped away so that we could come near. Jesus took our sin so that our burdens could be lifted. This entire prayer, praying for us to be kept, praying for our joy, praying for our sanctification, and praying for our unity, all of it, all of it is because Jesus died for you and me. He willingly took upon him our sins so that we could experience this life-changing prayer, so that we could be the recipients of his crying out before the Father. This prayer came at the expense of Jesus' life. This prayer would have been all for naught if what happened the next day hadn't happened. Jesus went to the cross so that we could experience the realities of God's keeping us, of the joy that He has set before us, of our sanctification and of our unity. I want to close with this bit of good news from Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, and he is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. On that lonely night before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus prayed for us. But I want you to know today that ever since Jesus was lifted up into the heavens, he hasn't stopped praying for us. In fact, the Spirit of God, it says, is is praying with, with groanings that they can't be translated. The Spirit of God and Jesus Christ Himself, according to Romans 8, both of them are bringing you and I before the Father moment by moment. When you're at your most stressed out, when you're sleeping at night, 
when you're, when you're succumbing to temptation, when, when you're doing great and, and loving others well, whatever it is, moment by moment, the entire Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, are occupied on your behalf. Not just the church, not just Christians in general, but you fill in your name there and believe that Jesus didn't only pray for you the night before he went to the cross, but he's praying for you even as we speak. Now, I don't know what that does for your heart, but it sure does encourage mine to know that when I'm not praying like I should or I don't have the words or I'm wandering from God, that, that, that the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ are bringing us before the Father, praying things that we can't even imagine need to be prayed for. What an unbelievable truth. May God encourage your hearts with that reminder. As we get ready to close in prayer, I just want to remind you that if, if you need prayer for any reason or just want to linger and, and pray in here, you're more than welcome to stay as long as you want. But there'd be some of us who would be happy to pray with you if you would like. Let's talk to our Father. God, you're so good. It floors me that Jesus would, would be praying for us with his last moments before he goes to the cross. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for what Jesus prayed for. That, that, that he wasn't wrapped up and consumed with himself or, or, or what was about to happen. And if anybody was, he would have great excuse to be. But God, thank you that Jesus brought us before you. Thank you, God, that you're a God who keeps your children who holds us fast. Thank you that you keep us from the evil one. Thank you that we can experience your joy. Thank you, God, that you have set us apart. Continue to sanctify us. Continue to, to make us more and more like Jesus. Thank you that you have made us one in Christ. I don't understand this great mystery, God, but I'm so thankful that we have this such an intimate union with you. I pray, God, that as your people, we would, we would demonstrate, we would live that out for the world to see. That this prayer would impact our hearts but not stay there. That it would cause us to go forth on mission, pointing other people to our Savior. Thank you again, Jesus, for praying for us. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray.